two episodes of Soundtracking in 2019, two five-star films, following Yorgos Lanthimos' appearance to discuss his subversive period drama The Favourite, John S. Baird joins me for our latest show to talk us through the music in his much-vaunted Laurel and Hardy biopic, Stan and Ollie. Starring Steve Coogan and John C. Wiley, Stan and Ollie tells the story of their theatre tour of the British Isles many years after the peak of their fame. By turn, funny and moving, it brims with charm, innocence and a lot of wit. The central performances are utterly convincing and beautifully complemented by Shirley Henderson and Nina Arianda as the comedy duo's wives. Now, having worked with Clint Mansell on Filth, John employed the services of composer Rolf Kent for the score, whose previous work includes Sideways and Up in the Air, not to mention Dexter. And as always, you hear plenty of Rolf's work sprinkled throughout the conversation, even though his cues from the film have yet to be commercially released. But where else could we begin than with his take on Dance of the Cuckoos, the unmistakable Laurel and Hardy theme. Johnny Spade, welcome to Soundtracking. Can't believe this is the first we've had you on, to be honest. No, I'm, I feel a bit sort of put out, you know. Well, I mean, we've talked about you a fair no, bit I, with I, various people. Oh, you have? Yeah, Mr Mansell talked about you. Oh, you did? Oh, lovely. Yeah, lovely clip. About filth. Yeah. But listen, I've got to say congratulations, first of all, Stan and Ollie. It's absolutely glorious, is how I'd describe it. It's very kind. In a word, glorious would be my very one kind, word. yeah. There's just a wonderful response that it's had, and I think it's just because it's such a wonderful story, mm. and it's been made so with a lot of heart, yeah. I think, is that definitely. Yeah, it's a, sim- it's a very simple tale, you know. It's not a complicated tale. It's a very simple tale. It's a love story, really, more than anything else. You know, very simple narrative. And sometimes they're really difficult to do, you know, because there's not, you know, it doesn't really require a lot of sort of elaborate camera stunts, for want of a better word, you know. We do something at the beginning that's quite elaborate. because that, Yeah, because that's, that's, that was when they were at the height of their career and we wanted to reflect that and how exciting things were and how busy things were for them then. And then sort of juxtapose that with 16 years later when they come to Britain and they're, you know, they're older and they're slower and they don't have much money and it's post-war and we're pl- playing these sort of little houses. So we wanted to reflect that. So it lent itself to a more simple sort of storytelling method. But anyway, yeah, I appreciate you saying that, you know, it's, it's really kind. But you say that, but within the film there are a lot of different, I guess, setups in terms of, you know, you're, you have these two almost kind of parallel stories run and you mm-hmm. have this, this public persona of who they are, yeah. which is out in front on a stage in front of an audience. And then you have this kind of private side to them, the behind the curtain sort of thing. And there's... There's, you know, you're, you're filming Steve Coogan and John C. Wiley as these characters played incredibly. Mm-hmm. You know, they're actually doing these sketches. Yeah. They're, they're reenacting yeah. these moments, but they're also creating their own moments. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It, you know, when I say simple, I just mean that the narrative <laughs> was simple. The film wasn't simple to do. <laughs> no. my, my God, anything. But, um, you know, taking up on what you've said, those recreations yeah. of the, the Laurel and Hardy moments... They took weeks to prepare for. And usually in a movie like this, you know, a movie this size, you would have one week rehearsal with your actors. And we had four because we had to get them so drilled, you know, and to be note perfect. Mm. And 
that was the great thing about Laurel and Hardy. They made their stuff look so easy, but it was so rehearsed. Yeah. And, and the timing was down to a T, you know. And they, and they spent a long time rehearsing their own material. So Steve and John had the added pressure of becoming them first and then learning how to, to do that. So, you know, they were working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, because they didn't even know each other. So they had to get I can't to believe that, yeah. that they'd never worked together and they never didn't worked, really know each other. No, never worked together. Who put them together then? Who's Who was it like, I know, Steve Coogan, John C. Me. I'm the genius in this thing. No, it was, I'll tell you what, we were very limited in our choice of who could play Laurel and Hardy because yeah. you're sort of governed by sort of physical appearance as uh-huh. well. Yeah. Background as well. I mean, you know, Stan was an Englishman who had, you know, grown up in, in, in Scotland as yeah, well. Yeah, I didn't realise that. Yeah, he was Glasgow. in Glasgow for a long time. He went to high school in Glasgow. His mother's buried in Glasgow. So he had been here for a while and then he sort of moved over there. Ollie was an American and... But Steve and John were the right heights. Steve and John both had a background in in comedy, mm-hmm. and they also had a background in. They, they both they both are dramatic actors too. So when you're looking for all those things, when you're looking for a specific nationality, comedy skills, you know, dramatic uh, range, the list gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. So the final lists were very small, but but thankfully Steve and John were at the top of both of those lists. And they said yes, eventually, after a few meetings and yeah. me travelling around the world, chasing them up to... to wow. You know, John to took a bit of persuading, didn't he? John was more so, yeah. Steve, Steve was a little bit more confident at, at the start. And obviously Steve was in London as well, so it was easy for me to get to Steve. Yeah, and I um, guess because Jeff Pope had written the script as well, who he'd done with Philomena, there yes. was a kind of, I, I don't know, a, a known trust there, yeah, there was, or a, a there was, familiarity there. There was definitely that. And Steve was a big fan of Filth, the, 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 the movie I did before. And he'd came up to me at one at the... In fact, I was presenting an award with you at, at the, the Empire, Empire Yeah, at the Empire Film Awards. And, and it was that night... Coogan came up to me and said, oh, um, uh, in fact, the first thing he said was, did you write that filth script on your own? It was as if to say, it must have been somebody else, right? There's no way, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, uh, but, but, but it was a time when, it was around about the same time as I started working with Jeff, and you could see him sniffing around the, the, but he didn't, you know, he didn't obviously say, you know, he was, he was a lot more respectful rather than to say, oh, can I play Stan Laurel? But, Anyway, we went to him and, and we, we had dinner and, and so there was an easier connection there. John, we didn't have any connection with John, so I had to write him a letter and I, I went over to LA to, to meet him uh, and I met him in this restaurant in, in LA called Muzo and Franks, which uh, which is a old school Hollywood hangout that Laurel and Hardy used to, nice. to, 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 to go to, but also where John proposed to his wife. And, you oh know, my it, God. Yeah, there was, there was all this history sort of behind this place and it was John's idea. John's a real romantic, you know, and uh, it was his idea to meet there. And funnily enough, somebody asked me yesterday, what does John Riley bring to, to Oliver Hardy? Why are they similar? Yeah. And the answer is they're both romantics, yeah? They, they are, and it's funny to think of this, this guy who, you know, stars in these movies like Step Brothers or some really dark stuff, like we need to talk about Kevin, yeah. or, you know, he, he's such a big softie and such a big romantic, yeah. yeah? And Oliver Hardy was like, oh. Anyway, I had to go to LA to meet John, and then he was still, he wasn't sure because it was a big responsibility mm-hmm. and he didn't want to mess it up. Because he meant so much to him, they meant a lot to him. Yeah, they were they were basically playing their heroes. So then I chased them down to a, a tiny little place outside New York called Spike Island. It's not Spike Island. Oh my God, I'm <laughs> so going to speak about yeah, I'm going to speak about Spike <laughs> Island in a minute. Uh, uh, Fire Island, which yeah. is just off Long Island, and you can only get to it by basically taking a train out to Long Island, then taking a boat, and then you've got to walk across the island. It's really remote. And John told me that after I had gone, because he's got a holiday home there. Mm-hmm. 
and he said, when, when I went to see him, he says, you know, this is the first time I've ever let anybody from work into a meeting in my house here. So I knew he was interested. Yeah. And then he said to me afterwards, he says, because you bothered to come all that way, he said, I really started taking you seriously then. Amazing. Anyway, blah, blah. What are you looking for, Stan? I'm looking for a fair price for a Laurel and Hardy picture, and you know it. Our pictures sell all around the world, and we haven't got a dime. That's because we keep getting divorced. No, it's because you're a cheapskate who got rich off our backs. Oh, come on now, Stan. He is. He's a cheapskate, a skin flint, and a, and a parvenu. A parvenu? He thinks because my contract's up and yours isn't that I won't be able to go anyplace else and I'll have to take what he's offering. Wait, 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 wait. Mr. What's a parvenu? Well, it's, it's someone who started out with nothing, got rich, but has no class. Look it up in the dictionary, Hal. There's a picture of you. Oh, you think you're some sort of smart ass, huh? Well, guess what? I'm smarter. Has he told you yet? We're setting up on our own. Hal, it might be best if you could see your way to a small raise. You're setting up on your own, huh? Well, how about this? Babe's still under contract with me, and I ain't releasing him. You can't have Hardy without Laurel. Well, that's what you think. When the film starts, you have this wonderful kind of musical sequence before you even get into that incredible opening shot that, as you say, kind of takes you beautifully kind of through where they are at yeah. the height of their career. Yeah. When it came to choices about who you were going to work with on the score, was that a, an easy decision? Well, I had worked with Clint before on, on, on Filth, on yeah. yeah, and I was very, very friendly with, with, with Clint. But I think Clint thought that he wasn't the right person for this particular mm -hmm. thing. And he, he was the first one to hold his hands up and say that, which I really respected, because I would have loved to, you know, I've loved to have worked with Clint. So what happens is, you know, the, the kind of film we've got, is, it's, it's a love story, there's comedic moments in it, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of emotion in it, and yeah. there's, there's some tragedy in it too. And when you're looking at a tonal balance like that, there are very few composers out there, anyway, with, with track records, one of them is, is Rolf Kent. Yeah, there's a few, there's a couple maybe, but certainly at the top of my list was Rolf Kent. And, and on Filth, I had tempted with a lot of Rolf's stuff before Clint had got involved. Amazing. What specific films? Uh, from Sideways. Things. And what Clint's, what, what uh, Rolf's great at is turning left really sharply into, you know, into a sort of downbeat mood from from something that's, in, or, or 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 making something slightly darker when you think you're you, you're actually just bobbing along the surface, you know. And he's he's a very clever guy. So we called him up, and and I didn't think he'd ever heard of me. And he says, "No, I was a big fan of Filth." And I said, "Well, you know that I tempt a lot with your stuff." And he's all oh, right. anyway. So we had these conversations. And he was a big Laurel and Hardy fan, and I flew out to LA to meet him. And he came to London, and then we decided, great. But 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 what actually happened was we were off. We we nearly didn't. We ne it nearly didn't work because we'd run out of money in the budget, and we had to go begging back to the studio and say, "Look." we want a really great score for us. We think it deserves a great score. And they looked at the film and said, right, great, we'll give you an extra bit of money to get a really great composer. Amazing. So that's how it happened. And, and I, I flew out to, I spent quite a few weeks in LA working with Rolf on the score. 
decided to do with it is we, you know, the, the Laurel and Hardy theme tune for Dance of the Cuckoos, Stan Laurel picked that, that theme because he thought that it reminded the himself of him and Ollie because there's a very high woodwind note which was which reminded of people <laughs> yeah. of Stan and then yeah. bum, 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 which was which was which was the hardy thing yeah, yeah. so we thought oh we'll, we'll embrace that and and use that within our yeah. template I was kind of after watching the film I got so kind of involved in them that I wanted to kind of know and learn as much about them as people as I kind of yeah. possibly could and and kind of reading back all that stuff about when Stan came to the States for the first time and and he was kind of taken in by Hal Roach yeah. and, and brought on as a writer and director type thing and and it's just really fascinating yeah I and you know that you know that Stan Laurel was Charlie Chaplin's understudy. understudy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he 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 actually arrived on the boat with Charlie Chaplin. And there's pictures, there's pictures out there of Stan dressed as Charlie Chaplin as an understudy to the, to that character. Yeah, to the to the, to the Trump character. Yeah. And uh, it's really difficult to tell the difference between Stan and Charlie Chaplin. Wow, that's amazing. In fact, very famously, Charlie Chaplin came second once in a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. He entered himself, <laughs> this is true, he entered himself in a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest and he came second. That's Mad, right? It's funny, right? Yeah. Um, um, there's some specifics with the score that I wanted to talk yeah. about, if that's all right, that, that really resonated with me. I mean, you know, we've talked a little bit about this opening scene yeah. sort of thing. Was, was that what... You know, once you and I was actually lucky enough that I came to Air Studios for a for a yes. short while and yes, saw that saw being that, yeah. saw that being recorded, which was I mean that was a little kind of tease for me of the film and it but it told me so much. Yeah. Really. Was that easy to score because it is a it's it's a, a kind of a preamble to where we are set in the rest of the film. Yeah. So did you think about that when you were thinking about? Yeah, it? we 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 wanted to start we, the the very very opening over the titles. Yeah, yeah. I think is the one you're talking about. Yeah. yeah? Uh, the title cards before we even go into that, the movie that itself. Scene, yeah, yeah. We, we wanted to give people an idea of old Hollywood because the card, the cards that we use, the title cards that we use are like silent movie cards where the credits come up. So we wanted to sort of invoke that uh, era and make it sound sort of quite uh, big in Hollywood and but with a nod to sort of Laurel and Hardy as well, like I talked about with the Dance of the Cuckoos, mm -hmm. just to really settle people into oh, this is going to be. 
this is going to be quite a lovely thing to experience. But what you'll notice as well with that is he, and this is where Rolf is really clever. He he throws in minor keys just every now and again, mm-hmm. just to unbalance you. Yeah. <laughs> so he'll use that theme, and as the as, as the as the film goes on, it'll become darker and dark, that that theme will become darker and darker. But we wanted to we wanted to set that in people's minds at the beginning. <laughs> Also, I think a real contemporaryness to the f- score as well. Was that something? That yeah, you- that was one of Rolf's things. Ro- Rolf, Rolf is, you know, Rolf is very smart in that. He said we want to try and set people back in that era, but 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 doing it with a contemporary sound. Yeah. So he just <laughs> he he had me and he had me in notes at the beginning. So I, I was like, okay, how are we going to do that? <laughs> uh, but he managed, and I mean, I thought I knew a lot about. I used to play in orchestras as a kid. Yeah. Okay. I used to play violin. So you know a lot about music and the kind of... Well, I, I stopped playing violin when I was about 15 or 16, but I grew up in orchestras, and I played in orchestras from about the age of nine. Wow. Uh, which is, weird enough, around about the same time as I started watching Lauren and Hardy. But I was never any good, you know. I, I, I just used to it's sit been there... been all right to be in an orchestra. Well, it was a school... You know what I mean? school or <laughs> Peterhead Academy school orchestra. How good can it get? Did you play um, theme tunes from films? Because school orchestras always, at those end-of-year shows, will play a theme tune from know, a film. We weren't even as cool as that. No. Yeah, no, it was more sort of like just, just typical classical stuff and mm-hmm. getting it very wrong but I as I say I got to I think it was grade five I got to in violin so it was okay it was an okay it's an okay standard so I I understand sort of orchestra and, and, and music on a on, on, on a on a level a little bit more of a superficial level yeah. I suppose but but uh, but when he when when Rolf started talking about um, you know or with a contemporary sound but with uh, you know f- from the old Hollywood I was like okay you're gonna have to explain a little bit more here <laughs>
but when I when I was communicating to Rolf, you know, I, I I started off by trying to get a bit too complicated, and he said, "Look, whoa, 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 just talk about emotions, yeah. Just talk about how we should be feeling mm-hmm. here. How are the characters feeling?" And that was a good lesson for me. And he works in a different way to Clint does, because weirdly enough, I think the filth score was more straightforward to to do than 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 Stan and all That's interesting. Yeah. Why so? You got a film called Filth, right? You you know that it's going to be pretty dark, right? There is there is it is humorous as well. It's yeah, funny. Yeah, it's very funny. But uh, but you know it's going to get dark. Stan and Ollie, for an audience, you're, you're walking more of a tightrope, yeah. yeah, because they think they're coming in to see comedy, but you've got to drop in the fact that it's going to be emotional. And but you and also don't want to like um, manipulate them as well in terms yeah. of their emotions. Do you know what I mean? Which, which I think is is where some films with score get it so wrong, where the score yeah. almost tells you how you're going to feel yeah. before it happens. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. Look, there, there, there were a couple of cues in there that we had to in the mix we had to pull back on. Yeah, mm-hmm. we had to we had to reduce some of the particularly strings at some point you know when it was getting a little bit too emotional we had to pull you know we had to pull back on these and that was interesting as well but the great thing was is you know I, I ran everything past Rolf if I was making any changes yeah. like, and uh, like I did with Jeff with the script as well a lot of the time Rolf was I didn't even notice I didn't even notice <laughs> that you uh, that you did it but, but no he was he was very generous I have to say would love to work with him again definitely And I guess as well because there's there's music within the narrative in terms of with some of those sketches, you know, whether it's the uh, I always get the name of the song in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Oh yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Trail the, of the Lonesome Pine. Yeah, yeah, or at the ball, you know, yeah, from way yeah, west. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. You know, those are in the film, those are in the narrative. Mm-hmm. So the score's got to 
it's got to fit with it's that. got to complement that yeah exactly yeah, it's got those are other conversations yeah. you have as well well that was the other thing you know we sat down we watched a load of laurel and hardy movies and we took ideas from the music that they used in their films mm-hmm. you know uh, and you'll notice there's a scene where stan goes in to talk to the producer because they're, they're trying to get a, a new film off the ground this robin hood film and the, the receptionist has no idea who he is and it's quite it's quite sad and tragic yeah. but then he goes he tries to go into stan laurel and he tries to sort of do these little tricks and, and these little sort of comedic sort of moves to make her laugh and and at that point we we, we kind of go into a score that a kind of Laurel and Hardy sound alike, really, that they would have used, yeah. you know, to invoke that as well. Yeah, it did have to complement each other, and, and and it was a, it was a, and that's why I said it was more complicated than Filth, you know, because with Filth you really had an open canvas. Yeah. But with Lauren Hardy, there's an expectation, uh-huh. uh, and people are expecting a certain thing, and you've got to, you've got to give a nod to that while not being a slave to it as well. So it was a, it was a fine, it was a fine balance. But we, we, we also had this great orchestrator, Matt Dunkley, who who did Filth as well, who works with Clint a lot too, and and he works with Rolf, and. He was our orchestrator, and he he wrote actually the Way Out West version at the end when the orchestra takes over. Yeah, yeah? yeah. he he orchestrated that. Yeah, beautiful. Then he was he was having to fit into what Rolf had done, you know. So yeah. he was coming backwards that way. Actually, the orchestrator plays the conductor of the orchestra in the London Theatre as well. Nice. Yeah, we gave him a wig and we took his glasses away. <laughs> and he looks completely different. But uh, but yeah, we 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 thought, well, why not use the real guy? Yeah. You know, the real conductor. <laughs> The music in all the old, well, most of the Leroy Shield was the the man who kind of wrote right. all the music, and that was. Did did Rolf kind of did he listen to much of that? Did you look, listen to much of that or not? I I never. I wasn't aware of the composer yeah. of the of the of the Lord and Hardy films. I knew I know I, I know the music. I would imagine Rolf did dive in there. Yeah, listen to it, but 
again, it did, it doesn't sound as though he's been a slave to it, or, 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 or he's been too worried about you know having to in- include that. He's really doing his own thing. And Rolf, Rolf's that kind of character. Mm-hmm. If you told him to do that, he would go the other way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's what I love about him. You yeah. know, he's got a really dry sense of humour. We, we did watch a lot of the films, anyway, so yeah. I'm sure it was it, it was a big influence. <laughs> That last kind of collection of scenes where they're doing that last performance. Yeah, yeah. In, in Ireland. In Dublin, and yeah. even from that moment where they're on the boat and he's got his rug over him on the, you know, mm-hmm. on the deck sort of thing, to then when they're in the, in, in the theatre and they're doing the train station door scene and stuff like that. And the, the build and the use of music over all of that is yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, Coogan always mentions that as well. He, that was the thing he, he said really got him at the, at the end of the film. It's weird because that montage of them at the end was one of the first things that we cut and it's almost the exact same cut as we did on like the first day of the edit, you know. Yeah. It was it just really made sense to do it that mm-hmm. way. The music obviously came later and, and, and Rolf had to sort of be very particular about what he was scoring to, but that's one of my favourite parts of the film. That's always what gets me as well, the, the score there and how it builds and how mm. it builds at a crescendo, particularly when Hard, you see Hardy sweating behind the scenes. Really struggling. And you're wondering, oh my God, you know, yeah. is, is he going to make us through? And, and we, we let it fly there. Like, we really sort of, uh, we really push it musically there. But it doesn't feel, I don't think it feels as though we're try to be too manipulative it actually feels quite complimentary because you've got that build because it kind of starts back there and then it takes you you know you feel like you're kind of with them that's what it does to you I think yeah yeah you do and because you've seen those bits before and you're getting reminded of the fact of what you've seen but now now the stakes are a lot higher Mm. because Hardy's now had his heart attack and he's struggling through so we could afford to really you know give it some welly at that point yeah
really just reminds me of spending time with my granddad watching it as well because we right. used to watch that that tune is just as soon as I hear that it just mm-hmm. makes me think of my granddad and I just love the fact that that, that feeling that everybody so many people are going to get when they go and watch the film as well yeah it is it's a real nostalgia that seems to be people are really taken to it you know and I hope it introduces them to a whole new generation of people as well that's, well, that, that's one of the big things you know the thing that we try to do with this film is you, you don't have to be a fan of Laurel and Hardy or even know who Laurel and Hardy are to like the film, I don't think, because we always set out to just make us love story about these two friends who are coming towards the end of their careers and they're facing all these troubles and, they, and, and they're chasing the dream again, they're really trying to chase the star again. But what they find out is what's most important is their friendship and their, and their love for each other. So it should, work on that, it should work on that level, but they just happen to be Laurel and Hardy. So, and that's what we found in the test screenings. Your people have come out and said, well, I wasn't a big... F-. Like, some people said, oh, I didn't actually like Laurel and Hardy, but I actually really enjoyed the film, and I'm now going to sort of revisit their stuff. And I hope, especially a younger generation who maybe hasn't been exposed to them, it's so easy to go and see Laurel and Hardy now, because you just go on YouTube and yeah. all the movies are there. So it's a very easy thing to access for a, young, a younger generation. Like the physical comedy side of it as well, because my 10 just loves slapstick. Well, the kid, what, what, they, what Laurel and Hardy are, they, they are uh, adults, but behaving like children yeah and that's why and that's why the work across uh, different demographics yeah, yeah and age groups and and also nationalities as well we found that you know we've been in Italy and the states and, and everywhere with the film where we've been so far and it's incredible that they're loved right across the yeah. world you know and, yeah. the, and because they were you know their movies were all silent at the beginning so it was all physical comedy it was all yeah. visual physical comedy but it was also it wasn't politicized either it was just about them too it was just mm. about, it was only about them and their world and i think that's why it stands the test of time there's this particular humanity they've got to their comedy yeah. talk more about filth in a second but f- first I want to ask you about working with Scorsese who's yep. a bit of a mentor of yours yep. and whether you've spoken to him about music you know what we haven't had that conversation yet we 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 he's you know he in fact no that is completely wrong we <laughs> no I was thinking about it with Stan and Ollie yeah yeah we we, we've, we had loads I mean, of vinyl conversa- oh, in vinyl yeah and vinyl we took because that was what the whole show was about you yeah know? and having Mick Jagger as an exec producer it's kind of like yeah that I was, we had Mick on the show ages ago and I said to him I was like so does Martin Scorsese still have to ask permission to use a Rolling Stone song because and he's like yeah Bloody right! Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. You should. It's a big business, that is, and I've got a great story with that coming up, right? Uh, so, with Mr. Scorsese, he likes to score against picture in terms of go the other way, right? He'll he'll like Rage and Bull. He yeah. you know he'll use a you know classical soundtrack yeah. where has very very violent scene. If just for example, same same as he's done in Goodfellas and a lot of his movies.
So I, I did a lot of that in, in, in vinyl. Uh, there's this particular scene in vinyl where, and this is one he really picked up on when he watched this episode. It was set in a record company, and this guy had been fired, uh, and he was a bit of a he was a bit of a saddo sort of bloke. Mm. Uh, and anyway, he came back in the afternoon, and, and he was pissed over his mind, and he came and he was started to he started to like rip the bosses apart in, mm. in this very sort of funny but tragic sort of monologue and then he started to smash up the office yeah and in the background so over the speakers it wasn't a, like scored it was like incidental music mm-hmm. we had um, Take Me Home Country Road yeah. uh, uh, John Denver John Denver yeah. right you know uh, w- West Virginia and that was playing in the background and it worked so well and it was so tragic right this 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 guy who was just getting like he was so pathetic, and uh, and this was playing in the background. And Scorsese was just ending himself when he was watching this, you know, because it was it worked completely against what yeah. it should have been. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains. Growing like a breeze, country roads take me home to the place I belong. West Virginia, Mountain Mama, take me home, country roads. So we hit, we 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 hit discussion about that but one the story I was going to tell you about Mick Jagger was so myself and Irvin Welsh were so I, I it was the last that was my last day on vinyl uh-huh. and Irvin came to visit me in um, in New York yeah we were supposed to be working on a, yeah. on a script together uh, and I said come down with this set blah 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 and I hadn't, hadn't told him who was involved and we were sitting there in the monitor and just before we did the last shot I got a tap on the shoulder and turned around this was Mick hello chaps Come and join me in the trailer after, you know, we'll have a, we'll have some champagne. And Irvin's, like, jaw dropped, the massive Rolling Stones <laughs> fan, right? So he's like, you never told me, you never told me. <laughs> so we went back to Mick's trailer, which is a very modest trailer, I have to say. But he had all these, I'll never forget, he had all these Vietnamese spring rolls laid out in, in a bottle of Verve Clicquot. Lush. Yeah, nice. But Irvin was so nervous that he pretended that he was, like, emailing somebody because he couldn't get involved in a conversation. He was so nervous. Yeah. And then he basically, about 10 minutes into this conversation, he said, oh, I'm going to have to go. I've got, I've got an email to send. He just couldn't take the fact he was in the room with, um, with Mick Jagger, you know. And Irvin is never starstruck, you know. Never starstruck. I mean, he's the coolest guy you'll ever meet, <laughs> as you know. Uh, but Mick Jagger, that was just a step too far for him. You know, He I had to excuse that. himself. So me and Mick, we, we were chatting uh, about... Um, which music to use for the opening of, of, of my episode of Vinyl. Mm. And I had been temping with Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles, yeah. right? And he said, look, I, I've, I've seen the thing. I, th- I think it works. I said, do you know it's going to cost us $500,000 to use? Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun, I say.
I said, very straight faced, I said, Mick, I said, we have to use this. I said, you've seen how well it works. Because there was a, the, the way the shot was designed, the characters were walking in as bank, and we sort of shot it like the Abbey Road shot, where they're yeah, yeah, in slow-mo yeah. and they're walking through the bank, you know, from side profile behind each other. Yeah, and it looked like the Abbey Road sort of cover. And uh, I said, look, you have to do this, you know, we, we have to do this. He says, well, you know George Harrison wrote this song? I said, yeah. He said, let me phone Olivia Harrison and see what we can do. I think they managed to get it for like half price or something. Wow. But it was still an incredible amount of money to use that in a yeah. thing. But my point is, is that respect to him, you know, he didn't bulk it. He went and he went and got and it. And he, it. He, and he got the director's vision and he did it. And it really worked. It was a great yes. opening, you know. Talk about like a sort of contradiction of sound and the vision stuff. You you use music brilliantly in filth and a combination of the contemporary tracks that you use, the classical music that they use. I mean, there's a lot of music in that film. Lots of music, but it's yeah. used just really thoughtfully. Well, do you know what happened there? And I, I hoped you would talk about this. When you read the book Filth, right? Bruce Robertson, who's the main character, is obsessed with soft rock ballads, right? Yeah. So. All through the script, we had these references to, you know, Richard Marx and mm -hmm. Pete Satira and all, all the all, all, all that kind of style of music, right? Oceans apart, day after day, and I slowly go insane. I hear your voice on the line, but it doesn't stop the pain. I see you next to never And how can we see forever Wherever you go Whatever you do I will be right here waiting for you Whatever it takes Or how my heart breaks I will be right here to the edit we played it and it just didn't work it just didn't suit the film you know and we're like what are we going to do what are we going to do and, and so we, we went to all these different genres and styles of music and what we found really worked for the character in the film was, was like more of a soul kind of sound right and a lot of this a lot of the music choices in, in filth have that sort of soul element to them <laughs>
And then the other thing that we did as well is we, we wanted a killer track at the end for, for, for the, you know, the sort of suicide scene. And we were, we were actually temping, this is a, quite a sad story actually, we were temping with Time to Say Goodbye. You know oh, that wow. one, you yeah. know, the, the, the uh, not Pavarotti, which his name is... Uh, Andrea Pacelli. Pacelli, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quando sono sole sogni all'orizzonte mancano le parole Se lo so che non c'è luce in una stanza quando manca il sole And it worked so well, and it was a really tearjerker. And it was one of these things, like it was like again, it was on the first day of the edit. We tried this, and it was really working. And we we we, we sort of contacted the the owners of the music to do it. And and very tragically, the the person who'd written that song had committed suicide. Oh yeah? dear. And they were like, no, you can't use that because it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it just wouldn't be right for the family. And I said, oh, absolutely, totally agree, yeah. yeah. So we, uh, we said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So we t- music supervisor, uh, Mark Biffa, who's a fantastic guy, he, he, he was coming up with all these ideas and all these things. And he sent me through, he sent me through Creep by Radiohead. And I was like, Mark, don't take the piss, mate. You know, I said, how on earth are we going to get this? He says, no, 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 they're totally up for it. They're totally up for it. I like that he'd actually got the clearance before he, or spoke yeah. to him before he brought it yeah. to you. Yeah, I was, it was a, a stroke of genius. And it, it was like at the last minute as well, because I was in LA, you know, writing stuff with, with, uh, with Clint, uh, staying in Sting and Trudy's place, but that's another story. That's uh, an episode too. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so we said, and, and Clint says, look, I, I would like to do an arrangement on it. You know, I'd like to have, I'd like to, to, to introduce a haunting sort of Scottish sound to it and his bagpipes and everything in it. And then we said, well, who's going to sing it, you know? And at that time, Sting's daughter was, was staying in the house that we were staying in in Malibu. She says, I'll sing it. And I was like, right. She's got a great voice. Let's hear you. Because I was always a little bit reluctant. And she came in to test absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. And that's how that came around, you know? It was just, we were kind of forced into it really last minute and it all came together really, really quick. When you were here before Couldn't look you in the eye Just like an angel Your skin makes me cry You float like a feather In a beautiful world I wish I was special You're so fucking special But I'm a creep I'm a widow What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here 
we were going to release that as a single, and we I was going to shoot a video and everything for that. And Elliot or Coco yeah. uh, Sumner, she was advised by someone not to do it. And I think it was a really bad decision, you know. Yeah. And I think she, she regretted afterwards that we that we didn't, you know. And I think it would have been a great compliment to the actual to the film itself, but but it was never ever done, you know, which yeah. is a shame, mm. you know, because we had all the location, and everything sorted out where we were going to do yeah. it, how we we're going to shoot this video, uh, but it wasn't to be, you know. I want you to notice when I'm not around. You're so fucking special. I wish I was special, but I'm a creep. I'm a What was your Spike Island thing you wanted to talk about? Uh, the only cool thing I ever did as a kid was go to Spike Island. Did you? Yeah, I was a massive Stone Roses fan. And uh, there was three of us... All went the way from Peterhead? Peterhead. There was three of us drove down the car. We didn't know each other. The other two were at least ten years older than me. Uh, one, was, one guy was wearing a suit. One guy was like a white guy but with, with dreads and like army fatigues and a leather jacket. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And then there was me in a bar with, with the roses gear on, yeah? It was mental. And we went down, we stayed three days. There's, one of them had a mate who was at Liverpool University. We stayed with them in the halls. I slept in the corridor. And we went to Spike Island. And uh, you know what? I can't even remember that much about it. How old were you? 17. Wow. Yeah, I was 17. Uh, it was a fantastic experience, but it was the only cool thing I ever did. And, I, and it, in every opportunity I get to tell it, I, I do. Because the Stone Roses, really, that was, that was my band you know, as a kid, you know, of, of that age, yeah. that, you know, like, like many, many people. They did. I think it was Mike, Mark, Mark Whitecross did, yeah, yeah, did, yeah. did this. Chris Coggle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did the, uh, the Spike, Spike Island, Island yeah. movie, you know? Yeah. Um, it was great because I, I really liked the what the focus was on, so it was about the experience of being there. Yeah. yeah no, and it took me right back because that kids would have been the same age as I was yeah. when I went there. However, I had, I had a ticket for it, you know? I've got a story about that film. So I was doing the Tea in the Park coverage right. just when Matt and that were filming the film, and they needed a live big audience singing I Am The Resurrection. Coldplay were headlining that year, and obviously Matt's really good mates with the Coldplay yeah, boys. Yep. And he'd asked them if it was all right, just before they went on stage, if he could try and get the crowd to sing no. I Am The Resurrection and record the audio no. for the film. So then they come to Muggins here, who was there doing the TV coverage going, Aid, is there any way you'd go on stage and try and get the Tina Park audience to sing I Am The Resurrection for this film? Wow. And I was like, 
Alright, so we got it cleared. I had time to go and do it. So I went out there. I can't remember who was on before. It might have been Noel Gallagher actually in his High Flying right. Birds or something. Went out there expecting to have bottles of piss thrown at me and stuff. <laughs> and, but what they'd done is they'd got uh, the screens to put the words up. Oh my so I was God. like, who wants to be in a movie? Oh Who's God. a fan of the Stone Roses? All right, as soon as this song starts, start singing along. So they recorded it and the audio's in the film. That's, that's actually giving me shivers now, yeah. just, just listening to you. That is... That is wonderful. I'm gonna watch that. I'm gonna watch that movie again with that information because that's fantastic. Mm. Well, that's what you need to do when you when you when you're getting you know when you're doing a movie like that. I mean, Bradley Cooper he was stealing stuff from all over the place when they were doing Star is Born, you know. <laughs> yeah. So um, no, that's a fantastic story. Listen, we've got so much to talk about, but we'll get another episode. We'll do it again some sometime. Yeah, but yeah. congratulations on on standing all eight. Really you. is. I think it's a masterpiece. And thanks for your support. Really appreciate it. Thanks, John. As if you needed telling, that's I Am the Resurrection by the Stone Roses, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the fabulous John S. Baird. My huge thanks to John for taking the time to talk to us. I'm sure you'll agree he's an absolutely engaging person to chat to. Stan and Ollie is on general release around the world now and is a must whether you're a fan of Laurel and Hardy or not. Head to edithbowman.com if you're new to Soundtracking to catch up with all of our previous episodes and to subscribe to the podcast or do the iTunes thing and rate us while you're there. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Soundtracking UK. And just to mention, if you do head to edithbowman.com, that's where you can also find a specific Spotify playlist for this show and every other show so you can hear all the music that we've played in the order that it's been played, but in its entirety. Next up, top producer Elizabeth Carlson, who was absolutely brilliant when I sat down with her quite a few months ago for a good half-hour chinwag. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 